Now we're in Isaiah chapter 20 tonight. I heard, I read, that somebody estimated there were, have been 77 billion people who have lived on planet Earth since the time of Adam. It's a staggering statistic. But what is even more sobering than that is that for each person who has ever lived, there will be a time of judgment. And the Bible speaks about that time of judgment in a variety of ways. There's a variety of judgments seen throughout the scriptures. Revelation 20, God judges the lost. In 1 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 5, Christ judges his own. Then in Revelation 2 and 3, we discover that not only are there judgments for individuals, but also there's judgments for individual churches. And here in Isaiah, chapters 13 through 23, we have these burdens, these heavy-duty oracles given against nations that surrounded Judah, that southern kingdom. And we've discovered something going through Isaiah It's a principle worth highlighting. It's the principle of dual fulfillment. And that is, the scope of the predictions made sometimes transcend the events at hand. And the prophets, when they write, don't always tell us if it's going to be a near fulfillment soon after the event predicted, or a far fulfillment. And partially because they didn't always know when they wrote. They were making predictions not exactly knowing when that time would be, especially when it came to the atonement of Christ and his second coming. It was Peter who said that of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched diligently what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he testified of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This dual fulfillment we've already noted on several occasions. It might best be pictured as if you were looking at a distant mountain range. Now, from your vantage point, looking at a mountain range from afar, you see several peaks, but they look as though they're on top of each other, like there's real no distance between them until you get up close or you fly over them. And when you get close, you notice that those mountain peaks are sometimes separated by miles. What looked to you as one event are actually several events, one peak, several peaks that have been separated. And so it is in the scripture. I heard of a bartender who moved to a wild west town. And uh, as he was there, his predecessor told him, warned him, if Big John ever comes to town, You better leave immediately, because Big John is the meanest, ugliest, gnarliest guy you ever want to meet. So you ever hear the announcement, Big John's coming to town, you leave immediately. Well, years pass by, and one slight, scrawny cowpoke walked into the bar, and he said, Big John's a-coming, Big John's a-coming. And everybody in that saloon fled immediately, except the bartender, he wanted to, but He had to clean up some things. He was a little bit late. And as he was leaving the saloon, in walked the ugliest, biggest, gnarliest, smelliest guy. Black hat. Rode in on a buffalo. (laughs) Rattlesnake in his left hand. That was his whip. So strong when he put his fist down on the table, it busted in two. He walked up to the bartender and he said, give me a root beer took the root beer, broke off the cap with his teeth, spit it out, glass and all, down the root beer. The bartender said, would you like another, sir? The man said, I'd like to, but I got no time. Big John's (laughs) a-coming. Can you imagine what Big John must look like? Now that ugly, mean, gnarly fellow wasn't Big John. He was a foreshadow of somebody far worse, evidently, who was coming. And so, too, these judgments are so often a near fulfillment looking far into the future of a greater judgment, a greater time, a bigger one that is coming. 
Verse 1. In the year that Tartan... Now, this is not a formal name. This means a commander or a general. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod, and he took it. Ashdod was one of those five Philistine cities that bordered the western seaboard, principally, of the nation of Israel down south. In 711 B.C., Sargon II came in and invaded it. Interesting thing about this guy, Sargon II, who was, by the way, the father of Sennacherib, who we'll read about later. This is the only time in Scripture that Sargon is mentioned. Because of that, historians have long believed that Sargon never existed because, said these historians, he doesn't appear in any of the secular records, only this one time in the Scripture. But wouldn't you know it, as years went on and the spade of the archaeologists uncovered several things, eventually was uncovered the name of Sargon in the Assyrian form, Sarakim, Sargon. You know, it's always that way. The spade of the archaeologist eventually will put to despair all of the doubts of the naysayers. So often people said, oh, that doesn't exist. It's in the Bible, but there's no proof outside the Bible. They said that about Pontius Pilate. He never existed, they said, until they were digging around Caesarea by the sea, and they found that inscription. You can still see it today. It says, Pontius Pilate, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And then all the skeptics said, oh, (laughs) we were wrong. For a long time... The pool of Bethesda was under dispute. It hadn't been uncovered yet. The Bible talked about this five-porched, colonnaded pool. But there was no record of it. There was no find of it until eventually they dug around that Antonia fortress there in Jerusalem and they discovered the pool of Bethesda, as the Bible predicts, as the Bible states. And once again, all the skeptics could only say, oh, we were wrong. And so it is with Sargon. Look at verse 2. At that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take off the sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Prophets were special kinds of people. They were bold. They were courageous. Uh, No room for mediocrity here. God tells him to do something very unique and unusual, something that the people would never, ever forget. Here's a sermon they would always remember. As Isaiah just gives them the bare facts of the Assyrian captivity that was coming to the nations around them. Assyria would sweep through Egypt and Ethiopia. And it was going to be, should have been, a warning to the people of Judah. Hey, don't make an alliance with any of these other nations that Assyria is going to wipe out. Why would you ever trust in them when they too will be taken? Isaiah was what you might call a walking parable. He acted out a story to give a warning to the people of Judah. The way I see it, prophets were like spiritual radios. They were both receivers and transmitters. On one hand, they received God's message, his revelation. On the other hand, they transmitted God's message to the nations of Judah, Israel, and surrounding areas. Both receiving and transmitting. And they did it a variety of ways. Sometimes it was through pure proclamation, strong preaching, something that would engage the mind, move the emotions. It was a foretelling of God's word. Then other times it was prediction. It was future, as events were foretold that would come to pass. Still at other times, it wasn't proclamation, it wasn't prediction. It was, as it is here, a demonstration, symbolic actions to display something dramatic and get the attention of the crowds. Scholars call this a pedagogy in biography. They acted it out. They acted out the sermon. We find several accounts of this. Ezekiel, for example, scratched out a city map of Jerusalem 
and pretended to lay siege to that picture to describe what would happen in the future. Jeremiah put on a wooden yoke to speak about an upcoming captivity and broke a flask, a pot, in one of the valleys in Jerusalem to make a statement. Hosea married a prostitute, speaking of God's love no matter what the children of Israel would get themselves into. Then even in the New Testament, it was Agabus who took that belt of Paul and bound himself in it and said, So shall the man be bound in Jerusalem who owns this belt. Very dramatic depictions of what might happen. And here, Isaiah walks naked and barefoot for three years. So Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. You might say that this guy was the streaking prophet. (laughs) However, it is thought, and I would agree, that Isaiah the prophet was still wearing a loincloth. Most scholars, including Rabbi Rashi from the 11th century, would say that this word indicates the tearing of a garment, the taking off of of only the outer garment while the loincloth is worn. In other words, Isaiah would look and act like a prisoner of war for three years. It was a description of what the Assyrians would do to the Egyptians and to the Ethiopians in making them prisoners of war as they would lead them away captive. Sackcloth, of course, is that rough, hairy, Outer garment that itches, it's miserable to wear. He would take that off, still be in a loincloth, proclaiming his message. And here was the message, in other words. If you trust in Egypt, you will only go from grief to disgrace, from mourning to shame. That was the message. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah walked naked and barefoot for three years, For a sign and a wonder against the Egyptians in Ethiopia. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives. Young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. In other words, Egypt and Ethiopia will also be humiliated by the Assyrian siege. There's something in that verse that my attention is drawn to. I love the fact that God says about Isaiah, just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot. I love the fact that God wouldn't leave his servant out there to be humiliated. God came and exonerated, calling him his servant, placing him in a special class, you might say. Abraham was called the servant of God. Moses was given that name. Caleb, David, Job, all given that high honor My servant. Then in the New Testament, so many of the writers began their letters. Peter, James, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Somebody once said, to be his servant is to be a king. It's the highest honor there is. And for God to say, my servant Isaiah, was wonderful for this prophet. Then... They shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, Surely such is our expectation. Wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? Verse 5, the they that is mentioned is Judah. It's that southern kingdom. They are realizing now, hey, if the nations in which we trusted in are going to fall to the Assyrians, they couldn't protect us. Why trust in them? That was the message they needed to learn. They would watch as the Assyrians under S.R. Haddon would come through and destroy so many of the territories. And so... They shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation. Psalm 62, the psalmist says, My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Here's the point. Why associate yourself with a loser? That's what they're realizing. Why should we make an alliance with these nations who are going to lose? 
and be ashamed? And that's a good question for us to answer. Why would we ever want to be associated with Satan and his system and all of the allurements and lies of the enemy when ultimately Satan is such a big loser? In Isaiah chapter 14, as was covered a few weeks ago, here Satan exalts himself and says, I will be like the Most High. But a sentence is predicted on him. You will be brought down to the pit. And so Paul the Apostle says, don't be conformed to this world. Or don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. John said, love not the world nor the things that are in this world. He says, For the world is passing away and the lust thereof. So, why link up with a loser? Be a nonconformist. The ultimate form of nonconformity is to be a Christian. It goes against the flow of every value system in this world. And it's the best and safest place to be. Because as Luther said, with God, one is a majority. I read about an experiment a group of biologists did with what they called processional caterpillars. They took a group of caterpillars, lined them up head to tail on the top of a rim of a clay pot. There was a plant inside the pot, and this professor watched as these caterpillars marched following each other day after day after day after day. Not once did they take a break and move inside to feast on the plant. They all died of exhaustion and starvation. Satan would love your expectation to be from the world, for you to drink from the world's cisterns which are broken and can yield no refreshment. Because he knows if you do that, you'll be exhausted. You'll starve. Now Judah is seeing the folly in trusting in Egypt and Ethiopia. Now in chapter 21... We're going back to the nation of Babylon, which was covered back in chapter 13. Remember that Isaiah is proclaiming these burdens against 11 nations. 11 burdens are given in these chapters. And here we consider burdens 7, 8, and 9, Babylon, Edom, and Arabia. In this chapter, Isaiah foresees the fall of Babylon, which is so interesting Because as in Isaiah 13, Babylon wouldn't be a world dominance for at least a hundred years or so. So this is even before Babylon was a significant nation. Here Isaiah is predicting its downfall. Babylon, the city of Babylon, is located by the way it's only a set of ruins these days. I had the privilege of going to Babylon a few years back. It's 62 miles south of Baghdad. But notice what it's called in verse 1. The burden against the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. Babylon is called here the wilderness of the sea because the way it's situated in the Persian Gulf is you have rivers, marshy lands, lakes, and rivulets that are separated by land masses, and on either side, vast wilderness. There's even some ancient cuneiform tablets that refer to Babylon as the land of the sea. Here it's called the desert of the sea, or the wilderness of the sea. A distressing vision, verse 2, is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. I believe that's Cyrus, who wasn't born yet. His name will be mentioned in Isaiah 45. Go up, O Elam. That's Persia. Besiege, O Media. All its sighing I have made to cease. In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, during Daniel's time, Babylon was the world-governing empire. Nebuchadnezzar had a wild dream one evening. He saw a huge image whose head was of gold, whose chest and arms were of silver, its abdomen and thighs of brass, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And God was giving to this pagan ruler a succession of world-dominating or world-governing empires. 
beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, beginning with Babylon, the head of gold. It was a picture of man's rule upon the earth, a picture of the times of the Gentiles, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar. Later on, it would be Cyrus who managed to take both Elam and Media, that is Media and Persia, and unite them together and attack Babylon. Babylon was considered unconquerable at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And they boasted in the fact of this great Babylon. In fact, that's what, that's what exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had said in his own mind, in his own heart. This is the great Babylon which I have built. That's because the walls of Babylon were 311 feet tall. They were 87 feet thick. You could place 11 chariots abreast on top of that wall. In fact, they had chariot races. Can you imagine racing at 311 feet above the ground? No room for mistakes. Every 65 feet around the perimeter of the wall were watchtowers. The Euphrates River ran through the city of Babylon. And it fed that great, one of the seven wonders of the world, Herodotus tells us in his writings, the hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar. And the palace of Nebuchadnezzar was given several titles. It was given the title, The Marvel of Mankind, The Center of the Land, and The Dwelling Place of Majesty. No wonder this guy was so proud, but his kingdom would fall. Not in his lifetime, he was humbled, but in his grandson's lifetime, Belshazzar. I said that the Euphrates River flowed through the city of Babylon, and there were these brass gates that could open and close And the river flowed underneath those gates. And that would be its undoing. Notice the next few verses. Isaiah says, Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. It's as though Isaiah is poetically lamenting over the fall of Babylon because of its suddenness. Prepare the table, set a watchman in the tower, eat and drink. Arise, you princes, and anoint the shield. This would suggest a revelry, a feast of some kind, a huge party. Eat and drink, and then suddenly the command, anoint the shield. What Isaiah is doing for us is moving us a couple hundred years now into the future when Babylon would not only exist as a world power but be the world power, the unconquerable Babylon. In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar has a drunken feast with a thousand of his lords. There they are gathered together. They bring out the gold and silver vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. And they're having a cocktail party. He was the original party animal. And there he was, drunk. There they were drunk. And suddenly, on the wall, a handwriting appeared. I stood in that room a few years ago, and I tried to imagine the scene as I looked around the outside perimeter of Babylon. Many, many tekel yefarsin, the message wrote on the wall. Or, literally translated, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. He's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, your number is up. Nebuchadnezzar, you're a lightweight. You've been weighed in the balances. You've been found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and will go to the Medes and the Persians. In verse 6, For thus has the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman. Let him declare what he sees. The night that Babylon was besieged, there were watchmen on the wall. They were looking out, and it appeared that it would be a long siege. But one of the generals of Cyrus, the commander, who would eventually be the king, at that time it was Darius the Mede, one of the generals by the name of Ugabaru, no joke, Ugabaru, thought that the way in would be that river. 
So upstream, he diverted the Euphrates River into another channel and depleted the water level low enough that he could go under the gates in the riverbed. A drunken soldier had left those gates unlocked. They were swung open, and the Assyrian army managed to get inside under the breach of those gates, which also is predicted, as we'll read in the future, and came into the city of Babylon. And so... You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Fulfilled that night at Belshazzar's feast. Verse 7. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen, a chariot of donkeys, a chariot of camels. Probably these are caravans to transport supplies. And he listened earnestly with great care. And he cried, a lion, my Lord. That would be the exclamation of a shepherd with his sheep, seeing a a predator come among the sheep. A lion. It's a fearful kind of a sight. A lion, my Lord, I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered, And he said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Now, suddenly our interest is piqued by something we just read. Our interest is piqued because we remember in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, both 14 and 18, is this phrase, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. So now we see that the burly man with the rattlesnake in hand, riding the buffalo with the black hat, is merely a foreshadow of someone else, something else that is coming. This judgment of Babylon is the foreshadow of a greater judgment that we read about in the book of Revelation. Revelation 18, verse 2, John says, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. 287 times in the Bible, Babylon is mentioned. The only city mentioned more, of course, is the city of Jerusalem. As Jerusalem is the capital of God's kingdom upon the earth, while Babylon is the capital of Satan's kingdom on the earth. In ancient times, Babylon was the hotbed of all idolatry, polytheism, paganism, All things that were debauched and idolatrous and astrological came out of Babylon. We could even go back to Genesis 11 when there was a tower that was built, the Tower of Babel. It was the first time man organized a rebellion against God, and God quelled that rebellion. But in the future, Babylon will become both a religious as well as an economic force to be dealt with in chapter 17, and then fallen in chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. That's why I think the word is mentioned twice. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Both economic and political Babylon, religious Babylon, will fall in the end times. Interesting that we're talking about a country that we read about and hear about on the news every day, isn't it? Iraq. That's the modern equivalent of that nation, Iraq. History began in Iraq. It's interesting, the Garden of Eden was in Iraq. Adam's first home was Iraq. Uh, Satan made his first recorded appearance in Iraq. Noah built an ark in Iraq. Abram was from Ur of the Chaldees, southern Iraq. Daniel was in the lion's den in Iraq. And yet the greatest revival in history was in the northern part of that region of Iraq, when Jonah preached to Nineveh. And some great things happen. I believe we're in the end times. I believe things are winding up so fast and so hot in that part of the world that we're looking up because our redemption draws nigh. But you know what? Maybe against all odds, I'm praying that God would pour out His Spirit in that part of the world in the Middle East. 
I'll never forget being in Babylon, being in Baghdad and preaching the gospel and having so many people respond to Jesus Christ. Their hearts were so hungry and I believe still are hungry. So when you pray for our troops, pray for those countries as well, that God would do another revival in that part of the world. Verse 10, O my threshing and the grain of my floor, that which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. Now in verse 11, beginning in that verse, in the next few verses, is the burden or the prophetic vision against Edom. Edom is south and to the east of the Dead Sea, in ancient territory. Also, they were hassled by Assyria. The burden against Duma, Duma is in the, the root word of Idumea. You remember that Herod, the family of the Herods, were Idumean. They originated from this part of the world. So this is Edom, or Duma, Idumea. He calls to me out of Seir, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning comes, and also the night, if you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. Here's the picture. It's as if there's this stressed out Edomite in the city looking up to a watchman who's watching out on the perimeters of the wall. It's the night of the Assyrian siege, and he's saying, how much longer will this night of darkness, this Assyrian darkness, last? And the watchman answers back as if to say, the night of present turmoil is just about over, and day will come. But another night is on the way, which will be worse. And that is the Babylonian captivity. That's when the Babylonians will come sometime later and destroy that land. Also, when Rome occupied Israel and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., they also destroyed Edom, and from that point on, Edom vanished from history. They're gone. When was the last time you met an Edomite? They're not around. They were assimilated in other cultures. The judgment was complete. But verse 12 is is a candle of hope in the midst of the darkness. If you will inquire, inquire, return. Could be translated, repent. Come back. God is offering hope in judgment. He's saying, hey, if you want deliverance, if you're going to inquire, then here's your hope. You must repent. You must turn. This is a God of mercy, even when judgment is being poured out. Now, in the next few verses, before we get to chapter 22, is the burden against Arabia. And that's that huge portion of wilderness land, some of which gets no rainfall, down in Saudi Arabia, the peninsula. It's a third the size of the United States of America. A huge portion of land. The Queen of Sheba came from Arabia. Some people think Mount Sinai is located. There's a dispute as to where it is. Is it in the Sinai Peninsula or in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula? That's for another study. The burden against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia you will lodge, O you traveling companies of Dedanites, O inhabitants of the land of Tamah, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. For thus the Lord has said to me, within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail. And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. The year was 738 B.C. Another Assyrian bigwig by the name of Tiglath-Pileser, say that ten times, Tiglath-Pileser III, came and attacked Arabia. And in attacking these caravans, groups of Bedouins living in tents in Arabia, he forced them off the main route, the main trade route, and they hid in the forest. You say, forest in Arabia? Where are their forests? These are the thickets in some of the overflows, some of the wadis that collect the water in that region. And they were hiding in the thickets, 
And as they were there, they were thirsty. They were starving to death. There was an oasis nearby named Tamah mentioned in these verses. And emissaries from Tamah came and bought victuals and brought them to those who were hiding in the thickets, food and water to sustain their brothers in need during this Assyrian captivity. Something stands out to me, though, as I was going through it this week, that God has been patient with all of these nations mentioned here. You could begin with Babylon. Daniel the prophet will be in Babylon and will give one of the best witnesses that land has ever seen. But Daniel will be shunned. By the time of Belshazzar, when the nation is given to the Medes and the Persians, people don't even know of Daniel. His witness diminished because people didn't want to hear it anymore. And then Edom was given a chance. God said to them, we read, return, repent, come back. And even Arabia. Remember, the queen of Sheba heard the wisdom of Solomon that God gave to him. All of these nations had opportunities as witnesses were sent to them. But they didn't respond. And so judgment fell. When Babylon fell, the prophet Daniel said something very, very interesting. He said, Belshazzar, the God who holds your breath in his hand will come and judge this nation. And this night, your town, your country will be given to the Medes and the Persians. And that was the night of judgment. There's going to be a last night for every person, a last opportunity for every person. And there's going to be a last statement that every person makes in history and then eternity. And I wonder what yours will be, what mine will be. I trust that you all know Christ tonight, but I don't know. And I wonder if people have tried to tell you about Jesus and you'll come to church or you'll listen to messages, but you'll hold back, there won't be a response. One of these days, that day will be your final day. In 1912, the unsinkable Titanic set out on its maiden voyage. As it was going through those icy Arctic waters, another ship radioed the control room and warned of icebergs that were in the area. The man in that wireless room, as he got the message, sent back the response, Shut up. Shut up. We're busy. And with that fatal attitude... 1,500 lost their lives within hours. They were gone. Everyone has a last night, a last opportunity. God was giving love and mercy and patience and hope extended to these nations. Now, finally, chapter 22 is the burden against the valley of vision. We're dealing here with Judah, the southern kingdom. And because Judah began to act like the pagan neighbors that surrounded her, she is also included in the nations that are being judged. That's a principle also in the scripture. Peter said, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Yep, God's going to be merciful to Judah and deliver them from the Assyrians, but that deliverance won't continue unless they get on their knees and repent. And they didn't do it so that by the time of the Babylonians in 586 B.C., Judah was also taken captive and destroyed. The burden against the valley of vision, what ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? Jerusalem is called the valley of vision because of all of the messages, all of the opportunities given by prophets, men of God, that were spurned and shunned by the people of that land. Sometimes they were heeded. Sometimes they were listened to. Now, Jerusalem is set on a mountain crest, but if you go there, you can readily see that around Jerusalem, there are mountains that protect it. And so the psalmist says, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord is around his people. And so this... Wonderful city in that valley surrounded by mountains. 
the valley of vision, the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah pictures the city in a siege, but the people are milling around on the housetops as the enemies are approaching the gates. Verse 2, you who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. Your slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. That's because they were dying from famine and disease due to the long siege of the Babylonians. All your rulers have fled together. Even their leaders, their rulers, turned into cowards. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore, I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of my people. What a scene is the prophet is his heart is torn out. He loves the city like Jeremiah in Lamentations. He weeps over Jerusalem as Jesus who wept over Jerusalem. The psalmist declared, if I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its cunning. If I do not remember thee, O Jerusalem, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not prefer Jerusalem above my chief joy. And so the prophet mourns at what he sees as he predicts it. For it is a day of trouble and treading down and perplexity. By the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountains. At the time this prophecy was written, Assyria was very much the player, the big guy on the block. But the rising star would be Nebuchadnezzar over in Babylon. And in 605 B.C., at a very crucial battle, it was the Battle of Karshemish between two rivers, the Euphrates and the Orontes River. Egypt was almost totally destroyed. And it was that battle that left that nation completely unable to defend its borders so that the rest of that region was easy pickings, including Judah. Three sieges, three successive sieges by Nebuchadnezzar were leveled against the city of Jerusalem until she fell, she was ransacked, and she was burned with fire. Elam, verse 6, bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen and Kerr uncovered the shield It shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots and the horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. So numerous would be that army. He removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. That is where their weapons were kept, the armory. The strength of any nation doesn't come from its army. The strength of any nation doesn't come from its political parties. It never comes from the outside. It comes from the inside. Psalm 11 says, when the foundations are destroyed, what shall the righteous do? The nation of Israel was uniquely blessed. And I'm not saying that America is by any stretch of the imagination the new Israel. But I will tell you that America has been uniquely blessed by God, I believe. And I believe our founding fathers, when they talked about one nation under God, many of them, it was in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It wasn't some nebulous, generic God. In fact, there was a guy that was sent by the French government in the 17th century to the United States of America. Excuse me, it was in the 19th century, it was in the 1800s. Alexis de Tocqueville was his name. Because he wanted to observe, on behalf of the French government, this exciting experiment in democracy, we were called. We were the experiment. How would we fare? He came back and he said, the United States of America is the place where the Christian religion has the freest reign, and it's because of their worship in that state, in that condition that the fiber of the country is so strong. Now, since then, with successive generations and degeneration and adopting value systems that are not at all under God, 
we are ripening ourselves for judgment. Some would warn America and say, you're on the brink of judgment, perhaps. Or, perhaps, we're already seeing the judgment. Because after all, according to Romans, the mark of judgment is when God hands over a people to their own desires. And it could be that we have already been handed over. So we need to pray for revival, for ourselves, for our churches, and for our country. You also saw the damage to the city of David, verse 9. That it was great, and you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem, the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. You also made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who fashioned it long ago. The first time that Sennacherib, the Assyrian, threatened the city of Jerusalem, King Hezekiah did three things. Number one, he fortified the breaches in the wall by using some of the stones and the bricks some of the logs from the buildings that had been crumbled down and patched the wall. The second thing he did is construct a tunnel from an outside water source, the Gihon Spring, and he piped it by digging an underground tunnel 1,777 feet through solid bedrock that ended up at a pool inside the city of Jerusalem, the Pool of Siloam. And every year or so, when we go to Jerusalem, we always like to climb through Hezekiah's tunnel. It's a marvel of engineering. And that effectively took the water from the outside source to the inside pool so that during a siege, which can be months and even years, they wouldn't die of thirst. The third thing he did, however, was the most strengthening. He took the Assyrian threat before the Lord and he begged God for forgiveness and for help. And Isaiah the prophet assures him, we'll read about it later on in chapter 37, that God would spare the city. But eventually Hezekiah died. And eventually the people of Jerusalem began to trust in their own strength, their own armies, their own fortifications, their own feats of engineering, and that was their downfall. They didn't look to God. They didn't turn back to the maker of the city, the city whose it was, the city of God, I want you to listen to this statement. After I read it, I'll tell you who said it and when. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power, as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all of these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Listen to this. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and the preserving grace too proud to pray to the God that made us. That was part of a speech given in 1863 by President Abraham Lincoln. He was right on. We need more men like him in office on all levels. And we need to do what he said. Come back to God. Don't trust in your armaments. Don't trust in your fortifications. But look to your maker lest you become intoxicated with your own success. Then it was revealed, verse 14, In my hearing by the Lord of hosts, surely for this iniquity there will be no atonement for you, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. The bulk of this chapter is now devoted to one of the government officials in Jerusalem, Shebna the scribe. A prideful guy, he built a mausoleum to himself. That was his intent. He wanted to have some kind of a pillar, some kind of a monument that would mark his success as perpetual 
And people would remember him as they would go by the graveyard and see this huge monument. Think Absalom or think Pharaoh. His pride got him ousted, as we'll read. Verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, Go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, What have you here? And whom have you here? That you have hewn a sepulcher here. And he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock, indeed the Lord will throw you away violently, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. Can you picture that? Think of getting a piece of paper, wadding it up into a ball, tossing it away. That's the imagery. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. So I will drive you out of your office, and from your position he will put you down. Then it shall be in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand, He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I get this verse. The key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and no one shall open. In other words, he will do the king's business. He will have the king's authority. That's what the key of David is all about the authority of the house of David. Now again, our interest is piqued because this is quoted in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, when Jesus Christ writes that postcard to the letter at the church of Philadelphia. And he introduces himself to that church saying, I am he who has the key of David. In other words, Jesus Christ is the ultimate eternal king the king of kings, the one who has ultimate sovereign authority. And I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. He will become a glorious throne to his father's house. The peg that is mentioned is a tent peg. It's beautiful, beautiful imagery. Tents flop around, especially when the wind comes, and they can blow away if they're not fastened securely by pegs. And so... This man, Eliakim, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. I think what God is saying is that God has future plans for Israel and will stabilize them even throughout the storms, even through judgment. And they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, all vessels of small quantity from the cups to all the pitchers. By the way, since Jesus used this metaphor of himself, the key of David, Jesus Christ is the best peg, tent peg, you could ever have in your tent, in your life. You want stability from life storms. Make sure that your life is fastened by the ultimate fastener and stabilizer Christ. Verse 25, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall. And the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. Now, I know that primarily it refers to Eliakim, who eventually will be removed because even Judah will be taken captive by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. But just for a moment in closing, put on your New Testament glasses and let's interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. At the cross, our burden of sin was laid upon Jesus Christ. And at the cross, our sin, that sin burden was cut off. So I want to ask you a couple questions in closing tonight. Question number one, are you fastened by the tent peg? Is your life fastened? Are you made firm, strong, and stable by a relationship with Jesus Christ? If you're not, your tent is very unstable and will blow away when the storms of life come. 
Question number two, has your sin been fastened by the tent peg of Jesus Christ? Have you laid your sin upon him and has your sin been cut off, that burden of sin destroyed? Heavenly Father, I pray that all of us would be fastened by you and our sin would be fastened to you. I pray that each of us, Lord, would walk in a stable, wonderful, glorious relationship with the only one who can bring ultimate stability, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for our nation, for our leaders. We pray that you'd give them wisdom. We pray they would seek you. And many of them would turn to you or turn back to you. And we pray, Lord, lest we become intoxicated with our own power, that in seeing this preview of judgment, that our hearts would be submitted to you. And if we have not surrendered yet, that tonight would be the night. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. As we have seen how that through Isaiah the Lord did predict the judgments that would come upon the various nations surrounding Judah. And as we set the prophecy side by side with history books, And we realize how that each of these predictions did come to pass. You can understand why the skeptics try to say, well, there were two Isaiahs. And the one wrote his prophecies after the fact. Because they said, it would be impossible for someone to predict the things with such accuracy as were written in the book of Isaiah. The interesting thing is that Jesus quotes from Isaiah and he attributes it to Isaiah. A few years ago, there was a radio station in Los Angeles that wanted me to be on a talk show through the office here on my phone and they would call me up and they were going to field questions from the listeners and they said Greg Laurie is going to be on the show with you and um, I said okay that sounds interesting and they were uh, it was the first Gulf War and a lot of talk at that time about Armageddon and a lot of people's interests were piqued in that. And so when we got on the program, the radio host said we have three guests and uh, Greg Laurie, pastor of Harvest and Chuck Smith, pastor of Calvary Chapel. And they named the third one. He was the head of the religion department at USC. So as she opened the program, she threw the ball first to him. And he said, the idea of biblical prophecy is a farce. There is not a single prophecy in the whole Bible. It's all made up. And uh, there's just... This idea that things were written in events and fulfilled is just foolishness. I said, I beg your pardon, sir. I said, in the book of Isaiah, he actually names Cyrus as the king of Persia that would conquer Babylon. 
And he said, oh, any fool knows that there were two Isaiahs. And one was written after the fact. I said, well, that's interesting. Because Jesus didn't seem to know that. (laughs) And that Jesus quotes from the first section of Isaiah, which they say is Isaiah 1. And he quotes also from the second section section, which they call Isaiah 2, and he attributes them both to Isaiah. He said, but Jesus did not have the information that is available to us today. I said, I beg your pardon, sir. Are you telling me that you are smarter than Jesus as far as knowing Who wrote the books of the Bible? He said, well, he didn't have all of the information that it's available to us today. I hung up. (laughs) The program director, (laughs) the program director called me right back and said, we were cut off. I said, yes, (laughs) I know we were. I hung up. She said, well, why? I said, I don't know how to talk to a man who is smarter than Jesus about the scriptures. Poor Greg, he didn't know I hung up. And he hung on for a while. But uh, you see why they want to believe that. Because as we get to Isaiah There in 43, 44, 45, God will use the fact that he speaks in advance before things happen as the proof that he is the divine author of the scriptures. And he challenges the false prophets, those prophets of other gods, to duplicate that in order that they might prove that they are truly of God. And so, as we move through the book of Isaiah, we're going to be seeing so many wonderful things where God has proven that he indeed is God who transcends time and space. And because he is outside of time, can speak of things long before they ever happen because he is the transcendent God. And by his doing so, he proves that he is the author of the scriptures. So as Skip led us through tonight, we saw so many of these prophecies that were made against uh, Egypt and Idumea and Arabia, how they were so literally fulfilled. Judah and Babylon. And it's it's just exciting. The word of God is just so exciting because of the prophecies for one. Now, that brings up the issue of prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. Prophecies that are being fulfilled at the present time. And that's why the Bible is so up to date. It is even beyond. We haven't caught up yet with the Bible because it speaks of events that are still yet future just around the corner. So exciting times ahead as we continue our journey through this fascinating book of Isaiah. And as Skip pointed out tonight, the purposes of God, they're going to be fulfilled. It's important that you be aligned with God because God's word is going to come to pass. And if you're not really fastened with that tent peg, Jesus Christ, your tent will blow away. Your opportunities of salvation will be gone. 
you'll be lost. The pastors are down here at the front, and they're here to help you. They're here to pray with you. They're here to help you stabilize your life in Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you, as soon as we're dismissed, come on down. Let them pray with you and pray for you, that you might really get your life stabilized in him. If there are other issues in your life that you need to bring before the Lord and you'd like someone just to pray with you, they'll be happy to pray with you over other issues or problems that you might be facing. For all of these things, the Lord is the only real answer. I would encourage you, seek the Lord. Praise the Lord together singing, Alleluia. Alleluia, Alleluia. Praise the Lord together singing, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. God bless you. This is the end of this message. If you would like further information on any of our products or to receive our free catalog, Contact the Word for Today. The address is P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. Or you may reach us by our toll-free number, 1-800-272-WORD. That's 1-800-272-WORD.